Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. While most people conceptualize dyslexia as an intellectual disorder, that simply isn't the case. Although dyslexia is a struggle with reading, reading isn't all there is to our intelligence, just one component of our neurological profile. And as with most things in the brain, if one area is less reactive, chances are other areas might be even more reactive. This week, we explore research into the emotional world of children with dyslexia with Drs. Virginia Sturm and Krista Watson, co-authors of a new paper examining how children with dyslexia process emotional stimuli and what this might mean socially for them. The findings might just surprise you. Before we dive in, however, I would like to welcome a brief explanation of dyslexia, care of Dr. Krista Watson. This is Krista Watson Pereira, a neuropsychologist and an assistant professor in neuropsychology at the University of California, San Francisco Dyslexia Center. Developmental dyslexia is a learning disorder that is characterized by difficulties in learning to read despite normal intelligence and adequate educational opportunities. I am so excited to have with me today both Dr. Virginia Sturm and Dr. Krista Watson. Dr. Sturm is the John Douglas French Alzheimer's Foundation Endowed Professor at the University of California, San Francisco. She's an associate professor in the Departments of Neurology and Psychiatry and the Director of the Clinical Effective Neuroscience Laboratory. After undergraduate work at Georgetown University, she received her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and completed her clinical internship and postdoctoral fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco in neuropsychology. Her research focuses on identifying the neural systems that support emotion and social behavior in neurodegenerative disease and neurodevelopmental disorders. Dr. Krista Watson graduated from the Pacific Graduate School of Psychology, the Stanford PsyD Consortium, in 2014. She has a background in psychology, developmental biology, neuroimaging, and neuropsychology. Her research interests include brain development across the lifespan, and she's currently working on dyslexia at the ALBA Language Neurobiology Lab. Pardon me, that's a mouthful. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're happy to be here. So we're going to get to talking about a paper that you guys had released just recently this year, looking at emotional reactivity and dyslexia. But before we get to that, I'll I'll start with you, Virginia. How did you get interested in neurological development more generally, and then this emotional and dyslexia link more specifically? I've always been really interested in uh, brain behavior relationships and in early uh, clinical experiences, I had I had the opportunity to work with older adults who had significant changes in behavior and emotion and empathy. And this was in the context of people who have dementia caused by degenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia. And so in graduate school, I learned this, um, I learned about emotion theories and I learned laboratory-based approaches to studying emotions. And, and I wanted to bring this kind of approach to um, neuroscience and to understanding how the brain then supports these changes in facial expression and changes in physiology that we experience when we have emotions, such as changes in our heart rate and our breathing and the sweating on our hands and things like that. And so for most of my uh, research career, I've focused on older adults. Um, and we work in the Memory and Aging Center at the University of California, San Francisco, 
And it just so happens that we work with a really creative group of um, visionary, innovative neurologists and neuropsychologists who um, began to think about, you know, not just how the brain declines in the context of diseases as we age, but also to think about how the brain develops and how these systems um, grow and become complex throughout childhood and adolescence and young adulthood. And so we kind of started thinking about early life and um, thinking about emotion in children and how similarly, you know, there can be um, problems or there can be alterations in these systems in across the lifespan that give rise to um, differences in, in emotion and social functioning. Wow. That's, and Krista, how about you? Because you seem to come from it from a slightly different angle here. Yeah, my interest started in undergrad at the University of Colorado. Uh, I took a class on the, um, the biology of behavior, and I was fascinated. I could not stop reading the book even after class. And, you know, I, um, I sought out research opportunities. So, so I have been interested in this for a long time. My interest in dyslexia started, though, through the work at the Memory and Aging Center. Uh, Dr. Gono Timpini, who's the head of the ALBA Neurobiology Language Lab, she was starting this new project on dyslexia, and they needed somebody to do the neuropsychological evaluations for the kids. And since I had that experience, um, I offered to help, and I loved it, and <laughs> I haven't looked back since. <laughs> So was there something about the dyslexia kids that drew you in or was it just the working with kids at that part? I think it was, you know, the kids are really fun and they have these great personalities and, you know, their own little quirks that they they just aren't afraid to show. And so um, and I also liked the language aspect of it. Dr. Gorna Timpini um, is an expert in language. And so when I first started with her as a postdoctoral fellow, I was really learning a lot about the language. And so the intersection of like the kids and their personalities, and then also all of the intricacies with language and how they can differ in children with dyslexia and what that means for their learning. That's awesome. So the paper that we are gonna talk about here, it's in the journal Cortex and it's entitled Enhanced Visceromotor Emotional Reactivity and Dyslexia and its Relation to Salience Network Connectivity. It's a mouthful, and we'll have to get to explaining all of that to people because I'm not sure how much sense it'll make to most people listening. But before we get into the details of the specific study, and Krista, I think this is going to be more for you. Can you explain to people about dyslexia? Because I know there's a lot of misunderstandings about it. So many people think it's, oh, you just can't read well, or you flip letters around. And it's so much more complex than that. So are you able to give as, you know, in as much little detail as you can, the information to let people really understand this developmental difference. Sure. Well, so I'd like to start by saying that if people feel confused, that's completely okay, because even within the field itself, there's a lot of debate. And so I think some of the confusion that people feel is a reflection of an ongoing debate in the field. Um, you know, currently the, the diagnostic manual for uh, mental disorders that the United States uses um, defines it as specific learning disorder with reading impairments. So they don't actually use the word dyslexia. So a lot of times we'll have parents say, wait, I thought my child had dyslexia. Why does it say something else? Um, and dyslexia is basically a term for the symptom 
of reading. Uh, well, it starts with like a, in a, a, a learning deficiency of reading words. And it can happen through developmental means, such as developmental dyslexia. It can happen through acquired means, such as a brain injury. Um, and the extent to which that happens differs. So if it's, you know, somewhat of a minor reading impairment, it's called dyslexia. If it's um, a complete uh, impairment in reading where it cannot happen, it's called alexia. Um, and the there's a genetic basis to developmental dyslexia. Um, so it's highly heritable among family members. And there is a neurobiological basis to it. Um, this is, you know, an ongoing part of research, but I would say that the kind of most conserved region that is considered is the, it's in the um, left part of the brain. So usually the left's thought of to be the language region of the brain and the right's more the social and emotional region, which Dr. Sturm will talk about <laughs> in more depth. Um, and it's in the back of the brain, kind of right behind the ear. And it connects a part of the brain that's used for auditory and language processing to a part that is used more for visual processing. And basically it makes it hard for kids to automatically detect that symbols are part of a word, that those symbols are unique and that they make a word. With that, and you mentioned the left hemisphere here. So you talk about in the introduction to your papers, just to get a bit of a, a background here, that there is reduced activity in the left hemisphere all around. So is that just in that specific area or is there kind of a, a general lack or not lack, but less activation in the left hemisphere all around for people with dyslexia? Well, at the UCSF Dyslexia Center, we like to think that there are different types of dyslexia. And so some children might have more difficulties in certain parts of the left hemisphere than others. Um, that region that I talked about is, is the one that I would say is probably the most specific and highly conserved in dyslexia. You would see that a lot in the kids. Um, there are other parts that have to do with what we call phonological processing or understand, understanding the sound to letter connection. And that happens a little bit higher than that other region I was talking about. And, um, and there's, a, there's a pretty significant portion of kids that have dyslexia that have a phonological processing uh, difficulty as well. Um, and, and there are other difficulties that could present themselves. So when you hear things like, you know, the left hemisphere is involved or there's reduced, it really depends on who's being studied. So what type of selection of participants are in the study and then also how they're being tested. So what, what is the type of test that that's being done? Um, and all of those can contribute to, to different findings. Okay. And just to go, Virginia, if I can, to get a bit of a basis of that right hemisphere and emotional link, because um, you mentioned, Krista, you know, the, the two hemispheres, we have the right that seems to be more social, emotional at play. Can you tell us a bit about what that means for, I mean, most of us in general, what's the level of activation between these two hemispheres and, you know, just a brief possible implication, which is what kind of led you guys to this study in dyslexia. 
Yeah, as Krista mentioned, um, there's old kind of ideas about the brain that suggest the left hemisphere is more important for language and the right hemisphere is more important for nonverbal um, abilities and emotion and social uh, skills are kind of part of that. Um, but visuospatial processing would be another example. And, um, and a lot of these ideas have been borne out in, in more recent studies. And there's also an idea that the two hemispheres are um, kind of oppose each other and that when you have a, a problem or a weakness in one hemisphere, you might actually have a strength or an enhancement in the other hemisphere. And so that was the very, very broad idea that we um, that motivated this study at the very beginning of this work. That was a collaboration between the Dyslexia Center, which was just beginning and our emotions lab. And a lot of people have said to us like, well, why would you ever study emotions and dyslexia? It's a reading disorder. And that's the first question we've gotten as, as, as for, from many people who have read the paper, um, but many parents that we've met with children who have dyslexia in their family, you know, have understood implicitly why we asked that question because they've noticed um, uh, similarities in their, in their children. But yeah, it was a really broad question to ask whether you know, on the, on, in kids who have uh, a little more trouble reading, as Krista mentioned, and maybe some lower activity in these reading systems um, in their brain when reading, if they might actually have kind of hidden strengths and hidden enhancements in, in the right hemisphere. And, and that's why we um, looked at emotions. So getting into the study now, um, because it's a fascinating piece of work, like I remember when it came out in my inbox, in my little preview of new journals, it was amazing. Um, can you tell us a bit about the study itself? So exactly, you know, how you went about looking at this? What do you do, you know, screening for the children? Um, because as you mentioned, Krista, there seem to be possibly different subtypes of dyslexia going in. So are we just looking at everyone? Um, how do you even, what were you doing to assess the activity, especially in response to emotional cues situations? Um, and then what were the general findings for it? So the children that come into the UCSF Dyslexia Center, they actually do quite a bit. Um, they're real troopers. Uh, we do a standard neuropsychological evaluation, um, where we look at memory, attention, some aspects of language, uh, what we call visual spatial functioning, or somebody's ability to understand um, spatial relationships and navigation. Uh, we also look at something called executive functioning, which are the skills that we need to um, plan to attain future goals. Um, so things like planning, organizing, multitasking, inhibiting impulses. Um, we do an academic assessment. So we look at reading, obviously, um, spelling. Uh, we look at reading of specific sounds that don't make real words as well to see about that phonological part that I mentioned earlier. Um, we also look at something that we call uh, phonological short-term memory. So somebody's ability to... Um, hold in a memory buffer, like within 30 seconds, um, sounds or words, and then repeat them back to us. We look at um, more experimental or kind of uh, tests that have not been clinically validated yet, but we think have some uh, scientific interests, um, such as uh, 
well, obviously Dr. Sturm's emotion study that we'll get into in more detail. Um, we also look at some other language measures that are more specific to certain aspects of language, like semantics or word meaning. Um, we look at things like morphology, which is how words change when you use them in different types of ways, for example, fast and faster. Um, we look at things like grammar and syntax, all kinds of things, so real detailed things. Um, we also do an MRI, which is one of the most fun parts of the study, um, where we look at the brain uh, and, and its structure. So we look at the brain cells, we look at the connections between brain regions, we look at how the brain responds to different tasks, um, and we look at what the brain does when it's just doing whatever it wants, when it's just resting. Um, so these kids, when they come in, is it just dyslexia or are you looking? Because I would think, you know, from a perspective of analyzing a study, are are we looking at just reading or are we looking at kids who may struggle in a lot of other areas as well? In which case, how are we determining what the basis is for the group inclusion? Yeah, we're extremely inclusive in our criteria. So we take anybody who is having uh, trouble reading and we also take kids that are having trouble with attention and math. Um, and we just do a very detailed assessment and we catalog all of the difficulties that we see. So anybody who wants to work with our data can kind of pick and choose, okay, these subjects meet the criteria I need for this type of assessment or analysis. So in this case, Virginia, you obviously, I heard your emotion task that I want to hear about was in there. But for this group, was there a specific inclusion criteria that made it so that you could really hone in on this question of left active or left lower activation um, with emotions? The, the children in this study were between the ages of 7 and 12, and they had phonological um, dyslexia. And then there were control, a, a group of controlled children who did not have a history of any previous learning differences. And all of the children were of at least normal average intelligence. Okay. So we're not worried about any other kind of specific thing. Now, Krista, do you guys take the other kids in or were the controls run through your lab, Virginia? The controls came through the Dyslexia Center as well. Okay. All right. So, all right. So you have this, what is this experimental study going on then? What are, how are we determining their emotional reactivity? We know how we have them, but what's happening for them now? Yeah. So to, um, to measure emotions, what we call the, the word in the title, as you noted, was visceromotor emotional reactivity. And, and what that means is that during emotions, um, specific kinds of patterned changes happen across your body. So specific movements in your face might occur and you have a certain facial expression, also different changes in, in your breathing and your heart rate and, um, and your sweating and things like that might occur during different kinds of emotions. And we think each emotion serves a different function in our lives and that's why we have emotions. So um, negative emotions often help us to stay safe from you know, eating rotten foods. We have the emotion of disgust that keeps us, you know, moves us away from those potential, uh, potentially harmful things. And positive emotions, for example, like love, bring us toward others and make us want to interact and connect and maintain relationships. So emotions are, um, 
each serve a very you know important function in our lives. And and so we're trying to measure both those motor, the facial expression components of the emotion, and the visceral, the the autonomic and internal changes in the body that happen during emotion. So that's what that word means. And the way that we do that is we have to um, try to make people feel different things. And so we used um, video clips here. So they're short movies. And each movie is selected to, to elicit a primary, like, single emotion the best we can. I mean, emotions are complex, and we all have different emotions for different reasons. But we have showed them five different um, short videos, and they elicited different negative and positive emotions, one each. And... Um, before each video, everyone sits quietly through a baseline period where they see just a X on the um, on the screen. And what we're looking for is changes in from baseline in each person. So, you know, maybe your heart rate is a little bit fast just at rest. We're looking for a change from that heart rate while you're watching the movie. So we're comparing you during the movie to you during the resting um, baseline period. So during the um, laboratory emotions testing sessions. We also videotape all of the participants um, during the whole session. And we look very carefully at facial expression. And so there are ways to uh, code and quantify all of the movements in all of the muscles in the face. And so we have a team of people who are blind to our hypotheses. They don't know what we're trying to do in the study. Um, but all they do is Every second or less than every second, they, they quantify every movement in every muscle on an intensity scale of um, zero to three. And so then we can objectively assess how much the face moved while the kids were watching the different movies. Um, and then we, of course, asked them about how they felt about their subjective experience while they were watching the movies. And, and that's the general, um, the general framework that we use. Oh. So Sorry. What did you find? No, I was just, what did you find from this here now? <laughs> yeah, so um, so what we found was that when we measure autonomic activity, and again, that's the breathing and the heart rate and the sweating, um, that the kids with dyslexia were more reactive um, kind of across the different movies compared to the kids without dyslexia. So in particular, they had more sweating on their hands. It increased more while watching the movies, and they breathed more quickly. Um, and they also showed more facial expressions. So when we looked at the coding of the videotapes, they were they were more expressive in their faces kind of across the board compared to the, the kids without dyslexia. We didn't see any differences in their reported experience, um, but in the uh, face and the autonomic measures, we saw the group differences. That difference there, that subjective experience not being different, is that, I mean, that kind of fascinates me. So I'm just curious your take on what that is, because you feel like if you were to feel sweatier or your, you know, your heart rate goes up, you're visually showing this emotion. But is that their baseline? Is that kind of the, the thought process here that that's just their normal set of reactivity that someone else might have? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And it's a hard question to answer because um you know, often we don't find the same pattern in what people tell us in, in <laughs> compared to what they show us in their face and their body. And so, you know, there's lots of reasons why um, someone would tell you they feel something or they don't. They might not realize they feel it or they might not feel like telling you that they feel it. Um, we did notice also that on one of our um, kind of control tasks that the kids with dyslexia knew um, 
fewer emotion words. Like they knew the definitions of fewer words than the control children. And, you know, it's an interesting question as to whether, you know, learning language and reading and having, you know, just more um, fine-grained knowledge of emotion vocabulary might have to do with how they reported their feelings. We're kind of really interested in that as a follow-up question um, about how language relates to the emotional reactivity and if that plays a role at all here. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, set of, you know, further questions that we could pursue. Um, also, I'll just mention that we also found relationships between the higher emotional reactivity and some of the parent reported um, behaviors. So the parents reported on their children's, you know, various different social behaviors and symptoms of anxiety and depression. And the kids with dyslexia who were more emotionally reactive um, had both higher anxiety and depression on, on the different measure, on the different scales as they're as noted by their parents, but they also had higher social skills. And we thought that was a really interesting um, set of findings because, you know, being more emotional can be good, but it's not always good. <laughs> you know, like we don't, we, we don't want to always be emotional all the time. That's not really a helpful adaptive um, way to be, but at the same time, being emotional allows you to connect and build relationships and be empathic and lots of good things too. So it kind of speaks to the, the um, you know, double-edged sword here. It's like on the one hand, it's good. And on the one hand, it can be, it can lead to vulnerabilities and it can lead to trouble at the same time. So um, it's, it's kind of both. So I just want to follow up on a couple questions here that come to my mind when I hear all this. And the first goes to this language issue. So perhaps, Krista, I don't know if you know much in terms of that link between the language for emotions and the experience of emotions and dyslexia. But do you see that there's a specific, was that that trouble with emotion language stronger for dyslexia or is it just kind of a, is it akin to their other reading difficulties as well? Like, does, do they have worse time with emotions than other areas of reading or does, is that making sense? Am I making any sense here at all? Yeah. Well, I can speak to it on the emotional side. I mean, uh, on the emotional side, um, having a greater emotional vocabulary and, and a more fine grained use of language is associated with different, um, you know, better, like a uh, more refined ability to control and regulate your emotions. And it's thought to be a good thing. Like the more specific and um, granular you can be in how you express verbally, how you feel it, you know, when people even express their feelings and put feelings into words, parts of the brain that generate emotions um, are less active. They kind of quiet down. And so, yeah, like, you know, in lots of talk therapy and <laughs> journaling, all of these things have to do with putting your feelings into verbal words. And that that's supposed to help you control and manage your emotions. So yeah, I think, you know, how that in particular might be relevant in dyslexia when there's a difficulty reading and a, perhaps acquiring language and complex words. We don't, we don't, we didn't look at that in detail here, but I think it is a really interesting question. You know, it's probably not just that, but it, it definitely could be playing a role. You know, you make me think of how we tell our little kids when they're young to use their words for all their big emotions as they go through in hopes of helping them navigate exactly. it better is. Yep. So, yeah. So I guess just going back also then is the language piece of dyslexia here in terms of emotion language. 
generally worse for dyslexic versus their regular reading ability? Like if we think of their reading ability as being on a scale, like I know sometimes you'll talk about a kid who may be eight reading at a, a, a age six level or something like that going down. Does their emotion vocabulary match that age gradient or is it even worse? I don't think we know the answer quite yet. I mean, we, we just, we, um, it was kind of a um, surpri surprising finding. It was not necessarily, I mean, we, we could have guessed, you know, perhaps they'd be a little bit low, but we weren't thinking it was that interesting at the time, you know, that I think after we had the more, um, the broader set of findings, it became more interesting to think about how um, that, you know, challenge might relate to the findings of high emotional reactivity. But yeah, I, I think it was very preliminary in terms of how we looked at it and the data that we have on hand to ask the questions that you're that you're wondering about and are totally reasonable and good follow-up questions. But yeah, I don't know, Krista, um, if you want to add anything. But yeah, I don't think I, we personally have investigated it enough yet to know much more. I would second that. The measure that we use for emotion word knowledge is not standardized like the re the reading measures that we have. So it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges. Yeah. No, you can't know then. That's Well, I'll be fascinated to hear when you follow up on that one. I want to ask a bit about that that effect of facial expressions on the negative versus positive emotions. I know you had a main effect across all of those emotional states, but the mean data you provided in the paper did seem to suggest, and I know we correct for everything, and so I always just have to ask, but it did seem to suggest there was a stronger effect for negative emotions in that. Is that fair to say? That's very good detailed reading of the table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I'll say that um, although the theory that we went into the study with about emotions um, being in the right hemisphere and the generation of emotions being more in the right hemisphere, there, there are other theories of emotion that suggest that it's not, it's really the negative emotions that are more in the right hemisphere and the positive emotions are thought to perhaps be more in the left hemisphere. And so, you know, to me, when I saw um, and discussed was like of the negative emotions, it was the strongest um, example of where the kids with dyslexia really were <laughs> very quite expressive. Um, and, and disgust is kind of interesting because it's a, an emotion that is often linked to the right hemisphere and especially the insula. And um, the insula is a really interesting part of the brain because it represents the internal cues and the internal changes in the body, such as when your heart rate goes up and your breathing goes up. Your brain is monitoring all of that internal information and all of the subjective feelings that we get when we feel our heart rate going up is mapped in that right insula and in, insula on both sides. Um, so to me, it was kind of interesting going back to that original idea that if they have an intensity of the right hemisphere in their brain, if there's some hyperactivity or hyper connections, then it would totally make sense that an emotion that depends on the right insula would be the most prominent um, and most elevated, such as disgust. I'm kind of like thinking about this negative emotion link here in dyslexia and that link of the higher anxiety and depression. So... They're seeing this connection between, yes, they have the greater social skills, and I want to talk about that dual process because that's fascinating. But do we think that some of this hyper-reactivity to these negative emotions might be playing a part in the anxiety and depression that they also are reported as being higher on? I think it's possible. I mean, 
you know, the relationship between um, the autonomic and facial expression, you know, activity that we measure in the lab and, and something like anxiety or depression, which are more complex, you know, higher order kinds of constructs, it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. And, you know, anxiety, for example, you might, it's often linked to the emotion of fear and a dysregulation of fear. Um, so I don't want to, you know, over overgeneralize, but um, and depression can be related to, you know, excessive sadness or also, a, you know, feelings of nothingness and not not feeling pleasure or any anything to, um, you know, typical activities in life. So, yeah, it's not it's not that simple. Um, but yes, I think if you're overly sensitive to negative emotional cues in general, could that put you at risk for getting things like, you know, having trouble with things like anxiety and depression? Yes, I do think so. And I think the the parts of the brain that produce emotions such as anxiety um, and sadness and disgust um, often are more represented in the right hemisphere. And so again, if you're kind of like having more strong reactions and the, that part of your brain is a little bit, you know, hot, so to speak, then it could put you tip you over sometimes to having troubles with um, significant anxiety or depression. And I know there's this link to that. Krista, do you find when you have kids in the lab that there is like either a parent report or other parts of your work that find this strength with anxiety and depression just reported? Because I think a lot of people thought some of that was probably due to just the struggle to read. You know, I remember thinking, and I've heard this before as arguments that no, 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 they're they're sad and they're anxious because they're in a school system that doesn't work for them. There's pressure to read when it doesn't make sense. They feel negatively about the struggles they have. And I admit it's a very nice narrative. It sounds really lovely to think of it that way. Have you was that how it's always been conceptualized before, Krista, with your guys' work on? reading? Does this kind of throw that out or well, <laughs> compound I, it? I don't know. Yeah. I, so, so you're basically asking what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, <laughs> do the children have these kind of, uh, you know, sensitivities, emotion sensitivities, and that shows up as they have any difficulty in reading or are they having difficulty and that increases kind of their propensity to have these reactions. And I would say that we don't know. You know, I think this study kind of just shined a spotlight and say by saying like, hey, this is this is part of, you know, what what is the phenotype of dyslexia? There there is some emotion reactivity there. What what is causing it or what came first? That's still outstanding um, and, and needs to be better elucidated. But that is something that we hear from parents a lot. And it is it is true that a lot of the kids that come in are having troubles in school and it is distressing for them. Um, and there are other kids who, you know, they know they're having trouble in school and they kind of, you know, think that there are other things that are more important and, you know, find, find ways to, to kind of work around it. And I guess it's always hard because at least, you know, when I've, I've looked into this and seen it, the idea of diagnosing dyslexia comes so much later because you have to have those reading disorders. And so you're not going to look at a three-year-old and be like, ooh, they've got dyslexia because they can't read. Um, but is there a, a chance to possibly go earlier by just looking at this neurological profile first and following it up to see? Is that, would that yeah. make sense from? We, 
Yeah, there, there. So there is some basis for that. You know, as I mentioned, there's some heritability to dyslexia. Um, so we know that if a parent has dyslexia, they have an increased risk um, for their child to also have dyslexia. Um, so there's that. There are some things that are pre-reading skills that could suggest that a kid might have some trouble learning to read. And so right now, some of our work is around that and identifying what could be um, predictors of dyslexia before it even happens. Because another thing with dyslexia that we know is the earlier you can intervene, the better your chances are of, of treating it or remediating uh, the difficulties. Um, and so that is part of the work that we're looking at right now. And then I guess that would then answer the chicken or egg question. If you get kids in before they have troubles, but they still show the same reactivity there, that would be, that would make sense. All right. So just years from now, as we follow these kids that are young now going forward. Um, so I just want to switch here to this dual process of the strengths and weaknesses, because I know, you know, as you said, it was surprising and I know you think about that and say, how does someone with a propensity towards anxiety and depression and emotional reactivity um, have better social skills? Because usually, at least in adult populations, we tend to see the inverse, that people who struggle or have a greater risk of those or express those more frequently are not always connecting with others in the most healthy of ways. So. How do we even think about this for people to understand that the two might go hand in hand? I think there's lots that we don't understand still about about this, but um, I think most things are, if we could sample enough people in the world, normally distributed, you know, meaning that there's a, it's a bell-shaped curve, right? So you want to have emotional sensitivity. You want to react to the world around you if you need to. That's why we have emotions. That's why they're helpful. But when it's too too strong, when you have too many emotions all the time, or you can't stop your emotions, you can't end them. You know, they last too long. Um, then they can become problematic in our lives, and that's not helpful. And that interferes with relationships and and functioning. So I think there's probably a sweet spot in this curve where you know we can have the appropriate amount of sensitivity. Um, but not too much. And, you know, and if dyslexia kind of pushes you toward the upper end of that um, spectrum, then some of the kids are going to be in the zone of like the sweet spot, right? And a lot of the times they are going to be the sensitive ones and they're going to be able to show empathy to their friends and they're going to be able to, you know, read a situation and respond in the socially complex way that understood the nuances of, of that moment. And that's all really great. But sometimes there's some kids and maybe it's sometimes the same kids who at times, you know, have a extreme reaction, or maybe it's a different subgroup of the kids with dyslexia that we don't know who have more, you know, strong, stronger reactions than that. And, and sometimes those are the ones that, again, if you don't know how to manage those strong feelings and they last a long time and they're kind of more negative than positive, then, you know, that can lead to the symptoms of anxiety and depression. So there's many things we don't know. Um, maybe, you know, having high negative emotions in particular is, is the risk here. We, we can't tease that apart quite yet. Or, or maybe it's just, you know, another process that we didn't measure, such as emotion regulation, which refers to the ability to kind of control or, you know, manipulate your emotions to make them as you please. Like there's lots of other um, parts of this system that we have only just begin, begun to study. 
It kind of reminds me of the empathy research on that kind of U-shaped curve on needing for compassion or empathic concern versus personal distress or just, you know, psychopathy on the other end there. Um, that lack of care that you need a certain amount, but then you get tipped up too high and you end up with self-focused almost behavior versus the other focused that's required for empathy. So it sounds like a lot of what maybe would make sense is this degree of reactivity at a certain point that goes. One of the things you brought up in the paper there as one possibility was this potential awareness of nonverbal cues that may be strong. So first, I want to get to nonverbal cues, but Krista, is this something that you see regularly in dyslexia or assess for an awareness of nonverbal cues? Yes, we do. Well, in general, we look at nonverbal skills in the kids with dyslexia. And there are some kids with dyslexia that seem to have, you know, exceptional abilities in this area. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it as a blanket statement, but there are certainly, uh, you know, a group of kids with dyslexia that do have extremely good nonverbal skills. Um, and does it go with a certain subtype or is this just still preliminary? It's just kind of hit or miss. You may also have in your control group, lots of kids with really good nonverbal skills as well. Yeah, I think so. It, the work is still ongoing. And so I, I do think it's preliminary, but it does seem to be kind of this balance of what Virginia was saying, like these strengths coupled with these weaknesses. So you know, where some of the kids have a weakness in some of their language abilities, they seem to have, you know, for whatever reason, um, higher nonverbal abilities. Maybe it's visual spatial. You know, we see kids that seem to do really well at understanding graphs and charts um, or kids that seem to have like almost architect-like, you know, kind of thinking abilities. Um, that are, are that are beyond kind of their general age. Um, That's interesting. And so from an emotion perspective, though, what does this nonverbal cues, how would that link to emotion regulation experience, et cetera, more generally? Detection of the cues is the first step, you know, in the, in the emotion cascade. So emotions are processes that unfold over time and they get generated and then we can regulate them and shut them down to some extent. Um, so yeah, that's another point at which, you know, we kind of speculated, well, maybe they're more reactive because they see and literally see and hear more than the rest of us. And um, the th if their threshold for reacting is kind of lower than the average person, then that could explain why their reaction is larger or more sustained. And so yeah, the, again, the right hemisphere is thought to be key for perceiving emotions as well as generating them. So it was just one idea that again, we didn't really fully get to examine yet, but that maybe that was kind of driving these higher reactions was their sensitivity to the cues in the first place. Does this go back just, I'm going back to something in my head that you said at the beginning is that the right hemisphere was also the visual, visual spatial. Um, area of, of activation. So would that potentially be just another area of that, that seesaw of up and down of processing there? Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, artistic abilities and like the architectural abilities Krista was describing and, and kind of design and all of that creative um, thought might be 
really elevated in, in kids who have um, trouble with processing language. But, you know, I think we like to, to think about it as this normal variability in all of our brains that leads to the wonderful tapestry of human ability, right? Like, it wouldn't be very interesting if we are all really good readers and all really poor drawers. <laughs> like, uh, we need the designers and we need the sailors and the, the um, CEOs and <laughs> And all of that has to do with how our brains are organized and wired. And I think that's what we really learned from, from this work. A, a quick, before I, I ask about families and kind of the helping of this with this aspect, but just thinking about this more generally, I know it's probably another chicken and egg question. And I so apologize for that because I know there's so many and you don't have the answers, but I know I'm probably not the only one wondering this. Do these, the seesaw kind of abilities, do you think it comes first from a deficit somewhere that we kind of compensate elsewhere? Like you hear about people who become blind or, so, you know, later in life and their other senses do start to take over, but it takes time for that to happen? Or is it, do you think from the get-go that they kind of just developed unequally from the beginning? I mean, I think it could be either, as we said, it is it is kind of chicken egg and hard to know. Um, and it could be, it could be either one in certain cases could be right. You know, like in, in our, um, in older adults that we've studied, when they acquire an injury to one part of the brain, in neurology, they use the term release, like another part of the brain gets released. And in some of the older patients that we've studied that Bruce Miller, the neurologist who heads our center, um, studies, you know, when they have a, a new language speech problem, people became artists and they had enhanced function in the visuospatial right-sided parts of their brain that helped them to draw and paint in new creative ways that they hadn't before. So in that case, you know, the, the problem led to a release of another part of the brain and enhancement. But in the context of development, as we've been saying in, in kids, I think it's also possible that we're all born with, you know, strengths and weaknesses in different circuits in our brain and um, how those, why, you know, how and why those things interact, we, we have no idea quite yet, but it could, as you're saying, kind of evolve in parallel together and not necessarily um, be causal, you know, one to causing problems or enhancement in the other. Yeah. I think the other thing I would just add to that is that reading is such a new, uh, you know, um, tool that we have in our human cognition toolkit. So I think, you know, we probably had these nonverbal abilities long before we had any reading abilities. That is a fascinating point that I have never even thought about. That just kind of, sorry, you've got me thinking a whole big new train of thought here, but I won't go into all of it. But yes, it's true because we've always seen dyslexia as a weakness because of, I think, our cultural focus on reading and the importance of reading. But it's very likely that if these nonverbal strengths and even emotional social skill strengths were there earlier, we would have been looking at these people as having a strength to our survival, our, you know, our overall well-being. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. so funny to try and think outside of our current context because those terms like disorder and everything have such a negative connotation right from the get-go. And yet 
in other ways, when we think about our human history forever, that absolutely not being able to read was not a problem for several hundred thousand years. We have been pretty good without it. And those that couldn't, it probably, you know, even when we started with the written word, that was not the be all and end all of your ability to thrive as a human there. But so for families going, we take this and I think you really hit the nail earlier about this degree of struggle. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of kids will have potentially, and this may go to all kids, not just dyslexic kids, but we know the risk here from your research is higher for them to have greater emotional reactivity and possibly have it to a degree that is not necessarily helpful and conducive to overall well-being or is linked with greater anxiety and whatnot, even if you may see those greater social skills at other times. You dedicated some of this paper to talking about ways parents and others might support these kids. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's really important for people to take home that it's not just you have this really emotional child and good luck and see you later, but that there may be ways to help them manage these emotions, especially if we know that the language piece of emotions that normally helps us kind of manage and cycle down, I, I would say, may not be as in line or capable of being pulled from at this time. So what would we recommend to families for this? I know you mentioned music therapy in one of these. How would that work for that? And what would that do to help the kids here? Yeah, again, I think there's lots we um, don't know quite yet in terms of, um, you know, matching the perfect intervention to the child, because I think it is a match between an individual person and what's going on with them and, and any strategy that one might use. But, um, you know, music therapy was raised because it is, again, a nonverbal way of, you know, powerfully affecting emotions <laughs> through music. We all know that music can change mood very, very easily, and it doesn't require understanding language. So that that's why that kind of um, was raised. But I, as we kind of um, talked about before, I think it's an open question as to whether um, working on skills on verbalizing about feelings, you know, would also be a reasonable um, angle to try. And and putting putting feelings into words, as we said, might be a way of helping um, kids with dyslexia feel more in control. I mean, it helps all of us to feel more in control. So um, I think that that's a really interesting kind of um, other possibilities to think of. And and then there are, are simple, you know, behavioral kinds of strategies such as deep breathing. And again, kind of nonverbal strategies to calm down and be present in, in the moment that might, might be helpful um, for kids as well. It's just managing strong feelings, right? Like that's yeah. hard for all kids. <laughs> that's not- um, I would argue adults too. <laughs> and, and adults, yes. <laughs> it's hard for all of us at times and we all need a, a, a toolkit of a variety of options you know and i think helping kids to find the options that work for them is key because not all things work for everyone and if they have a, a bunch of options then that might be um the best thing going down the road and i think but another I, thing that we at the because uh, of dyslexia center often talk about is how a lot of the therapies that are designed for mood or anxiety disorders require a lot of um, talking and 
you know, this kind of short-term verbal memory that maybe kids with dyslexia have a harder time with, or even reading a lot of the papers that they give um, have, you know, reading on them. And so we would love to see, you know, children's therapists develop some new therapies for kids with with reading disorders and, and dyslexia so that they could participate in those therapies. That makes so much sense. I never even thought about the therapeutic element of how much reading is associated because it's true they give you a little homework to take home and work on and it's all nicely written down for you and i i know that would be stressful for someone with dyslexia to have to sit the more those instructions are in front of them you almost see those stress levels go up as they try to process what's being read at that point so you almost would be counteracting the effect there it, it makes me think this effect of you know the nonverbal cues and everything i think to stephen porge's polyvagal theory coming out i don't know it, you guys but that whole social relationship element it seems like that could play a lot for individuals with dyslexia to kind of have those social cues that they can pick up on to safety to everything but i guess that would require so much from other people as well that it might not always be self-directed at that point but i don't know if that makes any sense there <laughs> yeah i mean the the polyvagal theory that you're talking about has to do with the parasympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system and you know um we're actually doing some follow-up work on that exact question so that's very <laughs> wise of you to, <laughs> to suggest and um and yeah i i think you know this this first study that we've been talking about um you know, scratch the tip of the iceberg here in terms of um, what's going on, I think, in terms of the emotional and social functioning and dyslexia. And and like I kind of alluded to earlier, I don't think this is the end of the story that kids with dyslexia are just more reactive and that's it, because that doesn't explain all of the questions that we've been wondering about, like, why is that good? And when is that good? And are all emotions good? And, you know, all of those questions are really important next um, steps for all of us to think about and to take. But certain parts of the autonomic nervous system, as you're saying, help us to attend to others and to stay calm and to stay quiet internally. And I think that that part of the, the system probably also needs to be um, enhanced in dyslexia to give them, you know, the reaction, but also the calming <laughs> response. Like they probably need both to manage, you know, complicated social uh, relationships and interactions. So more coming on that soon. That's exciting. I'm happy to hear that you're already doing that, um, which leads to one other little group or theory that came to mind as well when I read this, which was um, Dr. Boyce's ORCID theory of children and their high stress response. And I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Oh, Krista, I don't know. No, that's okay. It's, you know, it's that theory that there are certain kids who seem to be hyper reactive to stress. So it reminded me exactly of this kind of hyper reactivity, but it's specific to stress. And, you know, it, when I, you read it, you kind of go, I, I don't know, is it that they're hyper reactive to stress? Is it just emotional reactive? You know, what are we, because they put them in stressful situations. So that emotional reactivity is going to come up as stress because, it's stressful and it's meant to be, but I, it just made me wonder if there was anything there 
because so many of those similar symptoms, and they do tend to be very empathic and towards others. So again, it's this dual functioning of, you know, that differential susceptibility, though, as they view it as it's not a blend of both, but you veer towards one or the other. These kids end up being highly attuned to others and quite well, or they can go down a path of greater mental health issues and whatnot. Whereas it feels like this is at least slightly different that we seem to possibly be seeing the same, that both outcomes in the same kids just situationally, possibly dependent. I guess there's still so much more to kind of scratch the surface with that. Um, so before we go, I want to, I mean, thank you so much for all of this, but what is the research? Like you've highlighted a couple that you guys have done. So what else is going on for each of you in this regard, kind of moving forward from this? Cause it's, it's not the end of the story. So what else, what, can people look forward to coming out? Lots, lots more. I think, yeah, I think um, lots of the questions that have, you know, arisen during this um, hour, I think we've, we've thought about and thinking about empathy, um, thinking about regulation of emotions, thinking about um, parsing apart the, these reactions into more fine grained measurements of um, like kind of what you're saying, like, um, like fight or flight, like a stress response versus a um, calming kind of physiological response and just understanding it with more precision, you know, what parts of this system are enhanced and some might not be, you know, and, and when. Um, I think all of those questions, we need to refine our understanding of, of, of our initial findings in dyslexia. And it might not be true that, you know, all kids with all forms of dyslexia have the same pattern. I'm sure that there are lots of subtypes that, and subgroups that Christo is describing that we could also um, study and find either very different patterns or some commonalities and some differences, you know, in those groups um, compared to the kids with the phonological kind of dyslexia. So lots of, lots of avenues to go down <laughs> for us. Christo, what about you guys in the actual dyslexia lab there? Yeah, we have lots of things going on. So right now we have two papers that we've submitted on this brain region that I talked about earlier. It's called the ventral occipital temporal region. Uh, we have a lot of work on neuroimaging that's that's being done. Um, I am looking at decision-making in dyslexia and I'm hoping to submit a manuscript soon on that. Uh, we are looking at other strengths. Um, so we're looking at um, semantics, as I mentioned before, which is the the um, the knowledge of word meaning and how words relate to each other and hierarchies and networks, and um, and we're also doing some instructional trials to see uh, if we can look at different types of interventions. The the type of intervention that's been done for the last fifty years has to do with phonology, and and we'd like to expand and see what else we can look at to help kids. So one last question, because it just came to me from this, but as it kind of pertains to what we all talked about, the chicken or the egg and this, you know, strengths versus weaknesses, the one side of the brain releasing the other, do these interventions that might work on reading, could they have the adverse effect of negatively impacting some of these strengths that we might see? I have not seen any evidence for that. Uh, maybe a theoretical theoretical question or a theoretical possibility. Uh, I don't know, Virginia or Dr. Sturm, do you have any other thoughts on that? I think we'd have to study it for a long time. You know, these changes in the brain 
if you really think um, any kind of intervention changes our brains, which I do think they they can, you know, if they affect other systems in in opposite or compensatory or reciprocal ways, all the all the complex relationships within the brain across these different networks, like we really <laughs> don't know a lot about how all of that works, let alone how um, over time changes in one system might affect another. So it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't think we want to, I don't think we'd think like things would get worse. You know, I think they, they would add on to each other and probably become better at reading, but also not undo uh, um, any kind of natural skills they might have in terms of their social strengths. Okay. That's just my gut feeling. <laughs> that would be hopefully mine too. It just suddenly goes, wait a second, we've just been talking about the seesaw there. So I could see people going, well, wait a second, you just had that seesaw. Why wouldn't yeah. that go the other it's way? But <laughs> We can't say not at all. No, there we go. Well, thank you both so much for being here to talk about this. I am looking forward to reading all of the studies coming out now. And I have an inkling on your decision making one just from my personal experience that I'm going to guess it's not a strength, if that may be my just guess it's, there. It's actually it, my, it seems like it's um, equal in terms of ability, but it's a different process. And that's what hmm. the paper highlights is a, a different process. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's fascinating too then. Um, which also may speak to that compensatory that if they learn things, but in a different way, it's not actually changing like either hemispheric reactivity or anything like that. They're just doing it in a roundabout new way that fits with their their activation there. Well, thank you both so much. Um, I'm going to have in the show notes, all the links to your labs, your work, your everything. Are you taking people in for studies now? Um, I know with COVID, everything's been closed, but for people in the San Francisco area who may want to sign up, are you guys open to new recruitments and stuff right now? Right now, we're not taking new participants. Um, we're still trying to catch up with all of our COVID um, protocols. Uh, yeah. yeah, but, but yes, please check our website and you know we have lots going on. Um, and so we would love for people to to you know keep up with us and and we hope to bring you more news and all of that soon. Perfect. Thank you so much once again. This has been enlightening as I expected and more questions raised probably than answers always given as is the case with research at the beginning. But I thank you both for your time and please check out their lab sites and their work because it is really fascinating. That's it for this week. And I would just like to add that what really has stuck with me from this discussion is the idea that what we view as a negative in our culture may really have been a positive historically and still can be if we allow it. This is the essence of neurodiversity and something that we all need to embrace. Hopefully this can help you shift your own thinking on what constitutes a deficit versus a difference. Next week, we shift gears and get into breastfeeding advocacy with one of my favorite people, Abby Thuring, or as you know her, the badass breastfeeder. So join me for a conversation I hope everyone will enjoy. Until then, happy parenting. <laughs>